The reading today is taken from 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, your word is truth, and we pray you would sanctify it by us now. Lord Jesus, you are the truth, and we pray you would open our eyes to receive you, to trust you, to follow you, to heed every one of your words to us. And Spirit of truth, we pray that you would lead us now into all truth, that we might discover the life and peace that your word reveals to us. These things we pray uh, for your glory, Holy Trinity. Amen. I'll do please be seated. And if you've got a Bible, do have it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 from verse 5. We're continuing in our series in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. If you've not been with us, previous sermons are available online. I would encourage you to listen to those. But Paul's letter to the Corinthians is really an exposition of his weakness and of Christ's sufficiency, his grace and strength that meets Paul Uh, in his point of need, and in the comfort that he discovers. So uh, we are comforted when we come to this same uh, God. Corinth is a church in trouble, and so a great encouragement to every imperfect church, uh, that is, to every honest church uh, that has ever uh, existed in the last 2,000 years, uh, and will continue to do so uh, until Christ comes again. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his a series of famous Second World War talks that became his book, Mere Christianity, which still bears reading, I have to say, even though it is now quite a dated book. But he is so clear on the essence of the gospel and its entailments that it still, as I say, is worth attending to. Well, he speaks in one of these talks on the Christian sexual ethic And he summarizes it with admirable simplicity. This is what Lewis says. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Of course, by marriage, C.S. Lewis meant marriage between one man and one woman. That very concept of same-sex marriage would have been utterly alien, not only to him, but to everyone in his Second World War generation. Let me state that simple truth Again, it is a fair and complete summary uh, of 
the Christian sexual ethic, either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. I think we need to be clear that that's what Christ calls us to in the realm of sexual ethics, when everything any of us will hear in the wider world will tell us something entirely different. Now, that was true also even in the 1940s. Uh, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, uh, now this is so difficult and contrary to our own instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. It's very perceptive, isn't it? And of course, he's absolutely right. Uh, We can't change the revealed will of God for his people to be sanctified in the area of our sexual behavior. Uh, So is that wrong? And therefore, is Christianity wrong uh, in its whole moral outlook in that area? Or have we gone wrong? Well, Lewis, I won't quote any more uh, from him. But of course, the reality is, as he knew and confessed, and as all of us know, is that we have gone wrong I've had the joy uh, all this week, uh, uh, every day, Monday to Friday, of doing an assembly in our church high school. And uh, I've been uh, telling our young people something of the uh, longest single conversation that Jesus had with any one individual. Do you know who it was? It was the woman at the well in Samaria. A woman broken by her own sexual immorality, but healed, accepted, renewed, uh, and given a new story to go and tell uh, with great vigor to uh, her townsfolk. Now, we didn't look at all those particular details uh, this week. There was a different theme uh, we were following. But of course we fall short of this demand. And the gospel meets us in our falling short and calls us to receive forgiveness, but then calls us to commit our lives to the Lordship of Christ and to live in a way that pleases him with the help of the Holy Spirit. And even then, of course, we doubtless uh, will fall and fail. But when we fail, we cry out to the Lord for mercy and he restores us. And so we go on until the day comes uh, when we are made perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, that's the way things are supposed to work But what happens when you have a situation uh, where somebody within the family of the church, when they fall into sin, rather than repenting and seeking the Lord's mercy again, rather hardens their face and says, no, this is the way I'm choosing to live. You better get used to it. And the words of one article I read yesterday, uh, you just need to recognize that God has moved on uh, and that we can no longer be held to this ethic from yesteryear. How then do we respond to such a person? Let me give you two very different uh, responses uh, to that. Uh, One uh, I was told about when I was a new curate uh, and uh, an older clergyman was uh, introducing himself to me, telling me about his uh, family story. And he told me that his dad in the 1940s Uh, had uh, been uh, married, but his marriage had come to an end, and he had married again. The bishop, in response, wrote to him with a formal lifetime ban of excommunication. He was told uh, that there was never a way back for him to discover the mercy and restorative grace of God. It's unimaginable, isn't it, in our culture uh, today? But in those days, uh, so keen at one level was the church to emphasize the holiness of God uh, that the lifetime ban was put in place. 
Well, the other uh, example, in fact, comes uh, quite unexpectedly uh, from my mother. She was, uh, we were having our weekly Skype yesterday, and uh, she was telling me about a story that's in uh, one of the uh, Australian uh, weekend newspapers, an in-depth article uh, on the trouble being caused uh, by a regional Anglican bishop uh, who's just taken over uh, in uh, a rural part of New South Wales. And the trouble is caused is by coming to a church uh, which had uh, a same-sex couple in prominent positions of leadership and saying to them, you need to repent. You need to turn away from this because the Christian sexual ethic is marriage, one man and one woman, or abstinence. Same-sex marriage has no part in the place or purposes of God. Oh, the entire congregation revolted against the bishop. And, of course, the culture and the media were immediately on this uh, same-sex couple's side and the congregation's side. And the article, cleverly written, as always, though quoting the bishop, uh, keen to emphasize that he was a lone, crazy, cruel voice uh, in an otherwise sane and merciful congregation. Well, that uh, response, uh, just as uh, the lifetime excommunication is impossible for us uh, to grasp today, uh, well, so in the 1950s, it would have been impossible to regard a bishop being the only one who would have held to the Christian sexual ethic in a situation like that. We have experienced the swinging of a pendulum from excessive hardness of heart to total abandonment of the Christian sexual ethic, all within the space of a generation or two, and all within the Anglican Church, just as within the wider society. I want to suggest to you, as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, uh, that looking at the extremes of where pendulums swing is not a good way to fashion a Christian response to a pastorally difficult issue. And what Paul says to us here uh, is neither hard-hearted nor morally lazy. It rather brings together both grace and truth with the goal of restoration, the exalting of the Lord, the unchanging standards of his word, but received by broken sinners in repentance, renewal, and restoration. So let's not uh, look to the 1950s and let's not celebrate today. Let's instead dig into God's word and see what it would say to us uh, about how we deal uh, with these issues uh, today. So three points I want to make. Uh, First of all, verse 5, a universal observation. Uh, Here we see uh, the grievous effects of one man's sin upon the many. I should say straight away, if you're looking at the text, as I hope you are, uh, you should be saying to me at this point, there's nothing in this text to suggest that the sin of the prominent man who has defied the apostle uh, and defied the word of God and is holding on to his sin, there's nothing in this text to suggest that that was a sexual sin. And you're absolutely right. It may well have been some other sin. Perhaps he was a teacher, and uh, to think of some of the examples in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was denying the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe he was someone causing trouble uh, around the Lord's table or in the matter of spiritual gifts. There may have been any number of ways. Perhaps he was being excessively selfish or bringing his power to bear in a way uh, that was simply uh, crushing to people, divisive in the church and dishonoring to the Lord But I take my cue from the sexual sin because we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul did deal uh, with a different man in a situation of sexual immorality that was then justified by the man bringing division within the church 
and dishonouring to the Lord. We also know that in Corinth, uh, and although it's slightly anachronistic to use this definition, uh, but in Greek the verb to Corinthianize uh, was uh, to engage in sexual immorality and promiscuity. That Corinth was a place that was saturated with sexual sin. And so it wouldn't be surprising if that was the particular sin that this man was trying to justify. But whether it was or it wasn't, it serves as a good and certainly apposite example in our culture, which is very Corinthian as well. But whatever this sin is uh, that this man is justifying rather than repenting of, uh, the effects of it, the toxic effects of it, are rippling throughout the congregation. If anyone has caused grief, Paul writes, he has not so much grieved me that the man's beef was with the apostle, or rather what the apostle taught as the spokesman of Christ. He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The reality is that when there is an individual in a congregation who is determined to justify themselves while flagrantly disobeying what the word of God teaches, that it causes a heart sink throughout the congregation. It causes division. Doubtless this man was popular and had supporters, and so there were arguments and factions developing. Say it was a sexual sin like adultery. Well, then there is a wronged spouse. There are a matrix of relationships disrupted. There are children who are disoriented as the stability of their home has been disrupted. The other Christians in the congregation, when they see this, are grieving not only for their friends, whose heartache they are now witness publicly, but as they look outward to the watching world, they grieve that here is one who was called by Christ to honor him in the way they lived in their sexual ethic, to point to a way that was so different from the world around, and yet within the church, the standards of the world have reappeared So there's deep discouragement, division, as well as the breakdown in relationships that inevitably accompany such a high-handed or hard-hearted justification of sin. So Paul is the one who's in this man's crosshairs, as it were. But the reality is that when sin is justified and not repented, it causes grief to whole congregations. So what then should be the remedy? What should we do? Do we just uh, wring our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do? Uh, Do we go for the uh, rather drastic option of throwing out forever and throwing away the key, as seems to have been the case uh, in some earlier points of our own church history? Well, again, let's look at the different way that is introduced to us here. Here is a a necessary remedy uh, when such things occur. It's in verses 6 to 9. And here we have the Christian way. And what is the Christian way? It is the loving application of restorative discipline. The loving application of restorative discipline. In the uh, theoretical uh, and still uh, formal uh, basis of the Church of England, we read this, the true church is a universal congregation or fellowship of God's faithful and elect people built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone And it has always three notes or marks whereby it is known. Pure and sound doctrine, the sacraments ministered according to Christ's holy institution, and the right use of ecclesiastical 
discipline. To be a genuine church, uh, according to our reformers' teaching, as they reflected on passages like this, meant we must teach the scriptures faithfully. Uh, We must baptize new believers and gather at the Lord's table. But we must also rightly exercise discipline, or we are not being the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul teaches us here, uh, but he shows what Christian discipline looks like. Let's work through uh, in these uh, verses and see uh, what he says. We see here first the nature of the discipline when Paul speaks of the punishment inflicted on him. We wince, don't we, when we read that word uh, punishment. But punishment in uh, Paul's uh, mind is nothing more than the removal from active fellowship or certainly the removal from any leadership roles uh, within that congregation. It would be excommunication, that is, the forbidding of the receiving of the bread and wine at the Lord's table, and nothing more than that. I discovered in my reading around for this uh, sermon this morning uh, that it wasn't until 1963 uh, that in English law, uh, uh, imprisonment was removed uh, as a possible punishment to accompany excommunication from the Church of England. Uh, What an extraordinary overreach of the civil law. There's nothing in here to speak of incarceration or physical punishment. The punishment here is the cutting off of relationship the denying of uh, public opportunities to serve in the name of the church, uh, the banning for a season of gathering around the Lord's table. And if we think, well, that seems uh, still quite extreme, let me read to you some words of the Lord Jesus. Uh, If we think discipline uh, is a strange thing to us, uh, as it certainly is to many in the modern church, this is what Jesus says when sin erupts within the body of his believers. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Now, Paul has tried that with this man, and he's refused it. Jesus goes on, if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul has done that. He's written his severe letter. The testimony is plain for the sin of this man. Well, Paul doesn't need to go to the third stage of what Jesus says because in receiving that letter, this man has repented. We'll see that in a moment. But Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, cut him off. He is no longer a part uh, to be regarded as a part of the body of believers. So Jesus teaches that. Paul is seeking to apply that uh, here in this particular situation. The punishment uh, is the cutting off of relationship. The responsibility for the discipline, uh, notice here, is the majority. That is, uh, it is Paul who has taught the word of God, but he hasn't simply let it become a one-on-one battle, like that one currently raging uh, in the rural diocese in New South Wales. Because here the congregation, or the majority of the congregation, has recognized God's word is clear, brother. You need to repent, not justify your sin, because it cannot be justified. And so, uh, because here uh, the responsibility has been rightly taken uh, by the majority of the congregation, uh, so it has the credibility beyond the mere leader himself 
uh, obeying the will of the church. There's only one time in 20 years uh, when we formally excommunicated someone uh, here at St. John's. Uh, We couldn't do it in the proper way uh, because bishops don't excommunicate people anymore. So we did it, uh, not just me or me and the wardens, but as a PCC, we gathered and we wrote to this individual uh, and we stressed using the principles here uh, that this was for his good and with a desire for his restoration. It's a responsibility of leaders uh, and in a well-functioning church supported uh, by the wider body of believers. But Paul's point in writing this uh, actually is to show us uh, that the end of discipline is its goal. Uh, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. That is, it's achieved its goal, and its goal is restorative. Its goal is the renewal of repentance and fellowship. Uh, Its goal, uh, as uh, Paul here says, is that there might be forgiveness and comfort uh, as the one who was once justifying his sin instead comes and joins the rest of us at the foot of the cross, crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Paul uh, here says, uh, look, God's word has done its work. There's been repentance. There is uh, godly sorrow, uh, as he will put it uh, a little later in this letter. Uh, So now, forgive him, comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So often in the history of the church, uh, it's been excessive sorrow and overwhelming of those who would otherwise have repented and been restored uh, that has been the shameful uh, legacy. It was, a, uh, in fact, one of the earliest commentators on this passage uh, was uh, trying to justify, in spite of what Paul said here, uh, a lifetime ban on a repentant man. The whole point of discipline is that in God's purposes, it brings restoration via renewal of repentance and the reapplication of the gospel. So uh, I I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This is the goal of discipline. The end of it comes with repentance is renewed, but the goal is the restoration of love, a fellowship of unity around Christ and his gospel and his cross. You see, love means that we exercise discipline. Jesus, again, says this to the Laodicean Christians, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. When Jesus loves us, he disciplines us, he rebukes us. We find that hard to hear because we live in a culture where discipline is thought of as the opposite of love. Not in biblical thinking. No, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. But hear Jesus' next words. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's exactly the same as what Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians. Uh, The end goal of rebuke and discipline is the gathering together again around the table of the Lord Jesus in that renewed intimacy with Christ and his people that is only possible among those who are broken by their own sin and renewed only by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So reaffirm your love for him, Paul urges. Just as love without discipline is not really love, so discipline is a tiny part of what love is. Sometimes in other seasons of church history, uh, people have acted as if love and discipline were synonyms. So if we've disciplined, that's it. Not at all. 
Love, uh, we know, as we look at the cross, as we read the scriptures, is all-embracing. Height, the depth, the breadth of the love of Christ to embrace us and renew us. Discipline is one tiny part of that. It's a tiny part the modern church has forgotten. And we must reclaim it if we would be Christ's church. But let us not in our our own pendulum swing uh, simply go back uh, past the middle point. Paul here means love him uh, in the full sense of the word. Uh, Leave aside the discipline now, forget it. I'll come and see how his own example strengthens that understanding in a few uh, moments. And finally here uh, in this section, we see the necessity uh, of uh, discipline. The reason I wrote verse 9 to you was uh, to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. A church that chooses not to practice Christian discipline is being disobedient to Jesus Christ. But a church that practices excessive discipline is also being disobedient to Jesus Christ. Friends, let's grab the pendulum and stop it swinging and let it center around again the cross of the Lord Jesus. Let us not be those who think that sin is such a little thing uh, that we just turn a blind eye to it in our corporate life. Uh, Let us not think that it is such a rare and excessive thing and only practiced by certain notorious individuals that the rest of us forget that we stand by mercy and grace alone and that no temptation has befallen any of us but that which is common to all of us and which may only be resisted by the Spirit of God. Oh, blessed are the merciful, uh, for they will be shown mercy, Jesus says. It seems to me uh, that Satan would have us, as we shall see in his schemes uh, in a few moments, do one of two things. Either be so clear on the law of God, uh, in this particular example that's running through the sermon, the Christian sexual ethic, uh, that as soon as someone falls short of it, obviously, they're shut out forever. And the other, uh, though, the mercy of God that all of us depend upon. Well, some so focus on that that they fail to hear the call to be holy as God is holy. The apostles, the Lord Jesus, uh, whom they preach, always brings these together. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And what is that love but the love that holds its arms out wide for us on the cross? Now let us be found obedient in these things. And then finally, uh, we've seen the universal observation, the necessary remedy. Finally, verses 10 and 11, the apostolic example. Satan is defeated as mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a quotation from James 2, verse 13. Satan is defeated as mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, Paul has been sinned against, spoken against, ridiculed, rejected. He has got a legitimate grievance. Look again at what his own testimony here is. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. That is, I've forgiven him, so you who have now recognized the sin of this man, you also must forgive him. Don't be more uh, zealous in your application of discipline than the one who was primarily sinned against. Uh, Indeed, Paul says, if there was anything to forgive, there really was. But now it's been forgiven. He wants to think no more on it. 
Isn't that the right way for us to all behave uh, in the restoration of relationships? We've been sinned against, there's uh, repentance, and so we forgive. Well, then we don't bring it up again in the next argument, in the domestic setting or in a church setting. Once it's dealt with, well, then it's gone and it's put behind us. And we don't gossip in five years' time to the new church member about what that dreadful man did uh, only a few short years ago. And how do we live like that? Well, he says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. It's an interesting sentence. He says, I've forgiven it, but I've done it in the sight of Christ. That's his power to forgive. And he's done it for your, that is the congregation's sake. Because otherwise there could not be unity. Again, a renewal of their own congregational life around the gospel. Now, when Paul says, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ, I think what he means is this, that he's heard the words that Jesus taught. And Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. This was his very next words. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Oh, if we have been sinned against and there is an opportunity for us to offer forgiveness, well, then we must take it. Because if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven, says Jesus. So, Paul here, in the sight of Christ, how could he do anything other than forgive this man who has so grievously wounded him and so grievously disrupted at the order and witness of this congregation? And that language of in the sight uh, is a good one. As it were, uh, picture Christ and the person who has sinned against you in your mind's eye. And each in the sight of the other. How then can you, who depend on the grace of Christ, to forgive your manifold sins and wickedness, withhold forgiveness from the one who now comes and seeks it from you? Oh, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown Mercy, And so, Paul says, uh, we do this in order that Satan might not outwit us. We're not unaware of his schemes. His schemes are all too visible in the professing church today. Uh, Someone has said, uh, Satan loves two things. He loves you to not believe in him, and he loves you to think him more powerful than God and to be terrified of him. In either way, he has you in his grasp. And we might say something similar in this matter of Christian discipline, uh, be so excessive, so zealous uh, for holiness that the penitent man can never find re-entry and Satan has won because here is a sin that even the cross of Christ cannot forgive. Uh, Here then is dishonor to the mercy of the Lord Jesus or go to the other swing of the pendulum, do whatever you want. God will forgive us, that's his job. As one of the people in this Australian article said, and I've already quoted it, God has moved on. I hope the church can catch up. It's so old-fashioned and hard-hearted and 20th century. We don't live that way anymore. We've discovered liberty. Love God and do as you please. Well, Satan is just as delighted, for he knows then that Christ, the Lord of his church, who calls us to lives of sacrificial sanctification, is equally pleased. So we let not Satan outwit us. Let both grace and truth do their work. The end goal is our reuniting as broken and renewed sinners at the foot of the cross. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that your word makes us aware of the schemes of the evil one. And we pray that we would not be outwitted by him. And Lord, we know that the only way not to be outwitted by him is to come and fall on our faces before you. You know our hearts. You know my sins. You know the sins of every one of those listening to me. We have nothing to be proud of, nothing to stand on in our own righteousness. And so please would you prevent that bitter root of self-justifying, self-serving sin from taking root. Please would you give us repentant hearts. Would you give us a godly sorrow as we contemplate those areas of our own lives that we know bring you shame. Please would you grant us strength, Lord, uh, to walk obediently, to know the fullness of your spirit, the uh, fullness of your mercy to us for every one of our sins of thought and word and deed. So grant then that we might together walk in truth and live in love. Amen.